On this first Sunday of the new year, we turn again in our study of 2 Corinthians, and we look now at 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1, and we'll take as our title, The Grace of God, and call it Radical Grace. Radical Grace. Radical is a word that's often used to connotate negative things, someone that's an extremist, someone that's way out of the way. But when you think about what it means to be a Christian, it's rather radical, isn't it? It's very unusual. It's very different. It's like a Pacific salmon who's swimming upstream when the current of the world is moving in the exact opposite direction. That's what it means to be a Christian. So it is radical. And of course, we're talking about the grace of God. And the grace of God is radical. It is extreme, isn't it? It's outrageous because it comes to people who do not deserve it, who cannot work for it, who cannot merit it. It's free, it's sovereign, and it's grace. And that's why we love the God of grace and the grace that He supplies through Jesus Christ, whether it's grace where we're totally passive in, the grace of election, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 11, there's a remnant according to the election of grace, the choice of God, freely, independent, without anything foreseen in the creature, because there's nothing to be seen any good in any person. Or whether it's the grace of regeneration, but God in His mercy, His great love and mercy wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, He's quickened us together with Christ. For by grace are you saved. What better picture of grace that Paul wants to highlight in Ephesians 2, that when we were rebels under the wrath of God, trying to gratify our own flesh, dead, could not move toward God, could not love God, and yet grace comes and arrests sinners and brings them to the mercy seat of Christ. It's all of grace. But in our text here, we're talking about the radical grace, very unusual, very different, very extreme, because it comes to sinners that comes to us in our activity. The grace of giving, for which Paul is talking about here. Or the grace of obedience, where we are now alive in the Lord, we're active, we're called upon to obey the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet it's still all of grace. The grace that empowers, the grace that rescues, the grace that delivers, the grace that strengthens, the grace that produces fruit on the branches, because at the root of that tree is the grace and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So as we look at this radical grace today, I want you to see it in three ways under this heading. Radical joy, radical power, and radical surrender. Radical joy, radical power, and radical surrender. Now in this transitional text, Paul is going to the second part of the letter and he'll spend two chapters about giving. Now this is not the ordinary giving that we do in the church, this was a voluntary offering he was calling on the churches of Macedonia and Galatia and Corinth to make for the poor saints of Jerusalem. He had said to them in other places in the Bible, because you have been beneficiaries of their spiritual things, because the gospel started at Jerusalem and went out from the Jews to the Gentiles, they ought to be beneficiaries of your material things, because they were very, very poor and going through persecution at Jerusalem. Well, the church at Corinth, some earlier, about a year ago, had decided to 
collect an offering for the saints in Jerusalem. You'll see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 as Paul told them how and what to do. It was voluntary. And then Paul was now sending this letter by Titus, and part of the reason was he wanted Titus to make that or get that collection and bring it to Jerusalem. So they had started to be willing a year ago, but they had never come through with the task. And so Paul now is encouraging them that what they were beginning to do a year ago, and you'll find this language in verses 8 and 9, that they would now complete it, and Titus would bring back, after he brought this news of this letter to Paul, bring back the offering from Corinth. And so what Paul is going to do is use the churches of Macedonia as an example to motivate the church at Corinth, which was much more well-to-do financially than the churches of Macedonia. The churches of Macedonia would be north of Greece. Uh, these are the churches that were founded on Paul's second missionary journey in Europe. And this would include first, in Acts 16, Philippi, secondly, Thessalonica, and third, the church at Berea. We do not have a letter to the church of Berea. But we do have one to Philippi, or the Philippians, and the Thessalonians, for which we will use in this message to see what was empowering these churches and how Paul is using them as an example for the church at Corinth and examples for us today. The grace of God was given to the church, churches of Macedonia, and Paul wants the church at Corinth to know about grace that came to them. It was given. Grace was then received by them, and grace was used by them in their activity in giving. So let's look at verse 2. Paul, will, in verse 2, he'll use a subordinate clause in verse 2 using the word hati, how that. The word that means I'm going to show you so you'll see the grace of God coming to the churches in Macedonia. How that, and then the second subordinate clause is in verse 3. Four is the same word hati in the Greek. That. So two subordinate clauses are going to point us to the grace of God and how it came to the churches of Macedonia, how it came later to the church at Corinth and their giving, and how it can come to us today in 2023. So verse 2, the first subordinate clause. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded and overflowed unto the riches of their liberality or their generosity. Now we need to focus our attention on the word joy. This is radical joy. This is unusual. This is something you don't see very often. Now, the beginning of every new year, we always wish each other a happy new year. But we know it's not going to be happy as the world uses the term happy. You will never be happy on earth in the way that the world wishes a happy new year. If you look at this text, as we use the word happy, these people are not happy. And I can prove it to you. Two reasons. One, they're in a great trial of affliction. Great means large. This is not normal. This is a radical trial. It's a radical test of their faith. It was extreme. It was difficult. When the Bible uses the word trial, often it uses the imagery of fire. 
that the trying of your faith, which is more precious of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire. Because we are tested with that imagery in fire. And fire gives us the image of something painful, something difficult. Peter also said in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to test you. Fiery trial means it's going to be difficult, it's going to be hard, it's going to be hot. These people are not happy as it relates to their circumstances because there's nothing you can point to and say, I see why they're joyful. Because all these good things are happening. No, they are in a great test of trouble, tribulation, or the word here is affliction. So what's the source of this joy? Could you be joyful in a great trial, a fiery trial, a great trial of affliction? Well, if you have the grace of God, you can. Because Paul is saying, I want you to see grace here. I want you to see what grace does. I want you to see how grace came and how it empowered them through radical joy. Now, don't get tripped up by the word radical. You just see it's radical. It's just different. You just don't see that very often. You don't see it often even in Christianity where you should see it. But you see it in the churches of Macedonia. Great trial affliction. Furthermore, we know that they, could, they couldn't purchase any happiness because they don't have any money. A great trial of affliction, deep poverty, radical poverty. Poverty, and the word deep means extreme. So this really is radical. They didn't have any surplus money to go buy any form of happiness or joy. They couldn't buy entertainment They couldn't buy good food. They couldn't buy excess clothing. They couldn't buy the latest and greatest designer clothes. They couldn't buy a vacation. They couldn't buy anything. Because you know when you're poor, you don't have surplus money. But they weren't just poor. They were deeply, extremely poor. I'm just going to take that to mean probably what money they had, because apparently they gave some. It was for the day's demands. Maybe a little extra. That's all. Now you tell me how they can be happy. How could they have any joy? Because Paul wants you to see the grace of God. How does this condemn me? And I'm going to guess it probably convicts you a little bit. How easily we complain in the land of plenty. How tight-fisted we are. Which begs the question in my own life, how is the grace of God being given? And it is. If you're a Christian, grace is available, grace is supplied, grace comes to the humble. Grace is coming to so move on us, to so stir us in such a way that grace is not a storage tank. We've used that imagery before. It doesn't come in and stop. Grace is like a pipeline that comes in and goes out in love to others. So what is the source of this joy and a kind of happiness? This is not the kind of happiness that we see in the world that we think of. The word joy here means a calm delight and contentment. It's calm, but there's delight. It's content because in some way these people have enough. They have enough. So let me suggest two ways 
uh, what we find in the two epistles to the churches of Macedonia, where Paul will tell us that is the source of their joy. First, that they're rejoicing in the person of God. All joy that comes from the grace of God is God's grace rescuing you and bringing you into the light of His love so that you can see the glory of God and rejoice in it, be glad in it, be content with it, and have a calm delight in who God is. You see this in the second church that Paul founded in Macedonia, which is Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. Paul would remind them when he came among them, he came not only with the Word of God, he came, but he came in power of the Holy Spirit. Our word came not unto you, our, our word came not in word only, or we came not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. And you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. What kind of affliction? Great, large, much. In much affliction with joy. Of the Holy Ghost. Now, again, what is the source of their joy if they're in much affliction? If the circumstances around them are conspiring to produce pain and hardship and difficulty, not outward circumstances of good, and yet there's joy from the Holy Ghost in the, the gospel. They have seen Jesus Christ for the first time in a new way spiritually, and they're glad at the forgiveness of sins. They're glad when they see Him and the crown of thorns upon His head and hanging on the cross because now they understand He was bearing the wrath of God on their behalf. That ought to make us glad again and again and again. They could say, My Jesus, I love You. I know that You're mine. Because you wore the crown for me, a crown of thorns. You took the blows in the back for me. You received the nails in your, your feet and your hands for me. He could have thrust them out of, their hand, out of His hands at any point. He could have come down off the cross at any moment. But what held Him there was love. It was His love for God and love for you. And He was sustaining he was sustained on that cross by love and He bore the wrath of God on your behalf. They saw that for the first time. And in much affliction, in a great trial of affliction, they had abundant joy. Abundant joy. Now the indication there is it started with the gospel, but it kept going. In chapter 3 of that same epistle, when Paul was concerned about the church at Thessalonica, how they were doing, he had to leave, you remember, only after about two weeks. He was concerned about their faith, so he sent Timothy back while he waited in Athens alone to, to check on them, to go back and minister to them concerning their, their faith. He sent them to comfort them and to establish them, make them stable concerning their faith. And so you remember... Paul sent Timothy with a message to remind them what he had said to them in that two-week period. He brought the gospel and he said, Through the gospel, don't be moved by your afflictions, because God has appointed them and you for those afflictions. 
So he sent Timothy with that information. He didn't want them to be moved, so he brought them back with, with the sovereignty of God, with that message to make them stable and to give them comfort. And then once again in chapter 3, he said, When I could no longer forbear, I sent Timothy to know about you, lest the tempter having tempted you and our labor be in vain. That would mean the tempter got to them and allured them off the pathway of faith and obedience. And Paul's two-week labor and all he endured would be for naught. But then Timotheus came back with the news of what? Their faith and their charity. Their faith was still producing love in much affliction, but why? Because of much joy. You remember Paul taught us in this letter in 2 Corinthians 1.24 that the essence of faith, the, the intrinsic, inherent quality about faith is joy. How can you look at gold when that gold is for you and not experience some level of gladness, right? So Paul would say, not that we have dominion over your faith, because we're helpers of your joy, because by faith you stand. Now, if you remember that text, we said, why did Paul say he's a helper of joy when he should have said, I'm a helper of your faith, if you just look at the logic of the grammar. If I said to you, look, Heritage, I don't have rule over your faith. And the reason is because you stand by faith. Because I'm a helper of your what? Faith is what you expect me to say. But Paul says joy because the essence and the nature of faith is joy. And so we're looking at the gospel. We're looking at the person of Christ. It produces a calm delight, a peace and a contentment that made them stable when there was no joy in their circumstances. There's none here that you can point to. They're being persecuted. They're in affliction. Their circumstances are very, very bad. And yet, they keep running the race because they have joy set before them. Just as Jesus had joy set before them, He endured the cross. How critical and important it is for you to have joy set before you in 2023, no matter what befalls you, no matter how great the affliction, how difficult the trial, because the tempter is trying to tempt you and allure you off the pathway of obedience and affliction with what? Greener grass. All you have to do, church at Thessalonica, all you have to do, churches of Macedonia, to stop the pain is stop being a Christian. And it's over. At least the kind of pain they were experiencing. They were suffering because they received the word and they're Christians. So the tempter comes in and allures them to a pathway of joy in the world. A calm delight by getting out from under the love of God and His sovereign providence by leaving the pathway of obedience. And so this abundant joy that was overflowing to the riches of their generosity, you can see joy is, there is the catalyst that produced a generous gift in deep poverty and much affliction because it was joy in the person of Christ and who He is. And we see that in Thessalonica. 
That's why they weren't moved. They were still trusting, still rejoicing, and then they were still loving, even when it was hard and difficult. The next one is, of course, the promises of God. We find delight in who Jesus is and what Jesus, or what God through Jesus, has said He's going to be for us. Now, look at Philippians chapter 4, and we'll see this. We're talking about a radical joy in the person of Christ and in the promises through Christ that then empowered the churches to do what? Give generously, and surely the, the donation wasn't much, but it was empowered with joy. A joy not in their circumstances, a joy they could not buy, a joy that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 4. Paul is talking about the church at Philippi, telling them that they had communicated with his affliction, and that's a monetary communication. The church at Philippi, since Paul founded them, had contributed financially to Paul's ministry for over 10 years, and now he's in jail. Not only had they communicated financially with his affliction for over 10 years as a partner in the gospel, they sent Epaphroditus to him to minister to him while he's in Rome in prison. Now, would you have gone? Epaphroditus might have been in a unique position. I mean, what was his job? Could he get off time from work? What about his family? He may have been single. We don't know. But we do know this. He was willing to travel Days and weeks by ship from Macedonia to Rome with a love gift from the church at Philippi, which they had been sending over the years, and he was going to stay there for some period and minister to Paul. The only reason he came back is because he was sick nigh unto death, and he was so concerned about the church being anxious over his welfare, he said, Paul, I've got to go back because he loved the church so dearly. So in this context, Philippians chapter 4 We find these words, verse 18. But I have all and abound and am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you. So Epaphroditus comes to minister, but he comes with a love gift. He comes with an offering. This is one of the churches of Macedonia that Paul is using as an example of the grace of God that he wants us to know and how it was given, it was received, and out of that joy liberality. And that which was sent by you was an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. How is it that a sacrifice can be pleasing to God, can be an odor of a sweet smell to God? In the Old Testament, you may remember that the sacrifices that were offered God was said, as if the imagery to be standing over it and and smelling the smoke that came up, which is not a pleasant smell. Uh, Burning flesh is not a pleasant smell. But the imagery is, is because of that sacrifice, in some way, God receives it as a sweet smell, a sacrifice that He receives, and a sacrifice that gives Him pleasure. Now, how does a sacrifice of money... Give God pleasure. How does it please God? Well, first, it's because it's by grace. That's what Paul is making very clear in chapter 8. I want you to see God's grace through abundance of joy. They were sacrificial in their giving, weren't they? 
But how can our sacrifices be acceptable to God? We know that God is not worshipped with men's hands as though He needed anything. But God is worshipped with our hands as though we need something from God. So their sacrifice is a sacrifice of need, receiving the sacrifice of Christ by faith, joyfully, that's producing the gift. How do I know that? Verse 18 or 19. But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So they're going to bring their sacrifice to Paul. They're going to bring their sacrifice to God. And they're bringing their need to God. Because if we give this offering of money, what on earth are we going to do tomorrow? How are we going to eat tomorrow? They have a calm delight and a contentment in what God said. And He said... I will supply what you need. And then what happened? Their hands opened. They were trusting in this epistle of joy, where Paul mentions joy over and over. He says in verse 25 of chapter 1, he was confident he would abide and continue for their furtherance and joy of faith. Joy that comes from faith. And so they're joyfully resting in the supremacy of God's promise that says, I will supply, and God finds pleasure in it. Not because they meet God's need. Yes, they were meeting Paul's need. But because through their need and their trust in God's provision, what are they saying about God? How are they giving God glory? He's dependable. He is trustworthy. He will do exactly what He says. And so their need was magnifying God's grace, which was coming to the churches of Macedonia. You remember Proverbs 15, 8? The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to God. If they bring their money, if they bring their sacrifice, if they bring their worship, it's abominable. He doesn't like it. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. Why? Because Wicked people, when they bring acts of worship to God, they think they're meeting God's need. And so He's going to give us a reward because we met His need. We bring you our righteousness, you give us heaven. We bring you something good, you give us a reward. We bring you our effort, you give us prosperity. He does not like that. What does He delight in? When you bring your need to Him. And prayer is just that. When you pray, you're saying, God, I need you, I need you, I need you to give like this. First, I need something to give, and that comes from you, even if it's through my work. I need you for obedience, I need your grace, I need your rescue, I need your deliverance, I need your help, I need your strength, I need Jesus. So out of that need, they say, you know what, brethren, let's give. Well, how are we as a church going to do that? I mean, how can we just give like that? What did God say to you? What are we going to do tomorrow? What did God say to you? So have a calm delight and a contentment in who Jesus is and His promises. And then that grace is empowering you for the gift of giving, serving, obedience in all that God calls us to be in Christ. And He gets the glory. That's His pleasure. We get the help. That's our pleasure, right? 
Jesus speaks about this in one more place concerning joy in John 15, verse 9, where Jesus says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Stay there. Continue in my love. See, afflictions, great afflictions like the churches of Macedonia can cause you to what? Leave the love of God. Why? Well, because He doesn't love me. I mean, hasn't He proven it to you that He doesn't love you because of all the things that befall you and all the pain and all the sorrow and all the conflict and all the difficulty? And yet Paul says, He's appointed it for your good. Stay under the waterfall of the grace and love of God the Father. As the Father hath loved me, Jesus says, so have I loved you. So stay in my love. John 15 and 16, the world's going to hate you. Stay in my love. The world's going to persecute you. Stay in my love. If you stay in the love of God... What does that produce in your life? Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, as I kept my Father's commandments, and I'm abiding in His love. Now, the abiding is future tense, which means this. You shall be abiding in my love, which means you'll be keeping my commandments. How do you know you're staying in the love of God? Well, you're doing what He says, right? Now, on this pathway of obedience... There's confession, there's sin, there's repentance, there's falling, and there's difficulty. But it's a pathway. It's the pathway of obedience. That's why we call it a pathway. It's not a perfect pathway, but you're there. You know why you're there? Because you're staying in the love of God. And what's the love of God doing? Producing the fruit like the churches of Macedonia. Grace comes, grace received by faith, grace produces enjoyment... Grace overflows in obedience, whether it's giving, even in a voluntary case like this. This is over and beyond the expenses of the church, which God calls us to do that as well, doesn't He? But how, do I, how do I know, or what is my experience, rather, of this love? Okay? Stay in my love. If you stay in my love, if you abide in my love, which is the same word for continue in the Greek, if you stay there, you're going to be keeping commandments. Well, what is my experience of staying there? Well, Jesus says it in verse 11. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, same Greek word, remain, and your joy might be full. What is the joy of Jesus? The love of God. What did Jesus say? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Here it is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. You cannot bear fruit without the root of joy. Now, some of you are thinking, I know he said that about three billion times. I got three billion more in 2023 because it's so critical. You cannot bear fruit without the enjoyment of the love of God. And when you're in much affliction, you won't stay on that pathway if you love money more. How can you give generously when you're tight-fisted? You cannot. So if money is giving you more enjoyment, if possessions are giving you more enjoyment, if vacation is giving you more, keyword, more enjoyment than Christ, then you keep vacation, you keep entertainment, you keep your money, and you may give a little. Because you can't without joy. So Jesus says, stay in my love. 
If you abide in my love, you'll keep commandments. And if you're in my love, it be, should be joyful. And then what's the command he gives in the next verse of John 15? This is my commandment that you love one another. Why not this is my commandment that you love God? Because he just gave the commandment, didn't he? Have joy in God's love and you'll be able to love your neighbor with your money. Even in great affliction and deep poverty because the joy of Christ is far greater and supreme over money. And the promises of God I trust in over what I can see tomorrow. Therefore, I'm claiming a promise of God and I'm saying God is faithful. He will do exactly what He said. What He said He would do. And that gives me joy. You cannot bear fruit and stay on the pathway of obedience without joy because the devil is going to lure you with joy. When he tempted Jesus, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship me. What do you think he was pulling out as we say all stops there? What do you think he was trying to offer Jesus? The glory. The joy, the satisfaction, the fulfillment of all creation can offer you. Get behind me, Satan. Thou shalt worship, which means treasure, love, rejoice in God alone. In Him only shalt thou serve. So, beloved, the key here is not to try to find out how much did they give You know, that would just be vain speculation. You know, we could talk about it all day. I have no idea. Because what Paul wants the church to see is the radical joy, not the radical gift. We might, if we knew, say, is that all it was? It was radical because it was motivated by joy in the person of Christ and in the promises that come through Christ. Because in this epistle, what have we learned? All the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes to you. So how do we have this joy? We pray for it and we go to all the promises in Christ Jesus that are yes. And we say, that yes is for me. Is God going to provide for my needs tomorrow? That yes is for me. That will open your hands. Is God going to bring me into everlasting joy? That's a yes. He said He would. He, He redeemed me. Is the grace of God for me? It's a yes, because I trust Him. In all the ways, the promises of God are yes. Secondly, not only radical joy, but radical power. For to their power, this is the second subordinate clause. For is that second way Paul wants the church at Corinth to see the grace of God given and received by the churches of Macedonia. For to their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves. Now, power here means their financial ability, their means to give. So, first they gave according to their means what they could do, but then Paul said they went even beyond that because of the deep poverty. Now, there's a lesson in it for us. They gave according to their ability, not to the ability of someone else, right? Sometimes you see Christian churches 
trying to get the world to help them in advancing the kingdom, have a bake sale or raffle tickets or stand at an intersection, collect money so we can send a missionary. What does that say about the grace of God? What does it say about us? We should not get the world's help to do what God calls us but get the grace of God to help us, and that's what they turned to. They went to their ability because they went to their means and they didn't get the world to try to help them to participate in this opportunity to give. But then he says it's beyond their power because apparently they were dipping into their emergency fund. Now, of course, they didn't have one, but you get the point. You think it's okay to dip into your emergency fund or maybe your savings account? No, they dipped into their budget. Not their monthly budget or yearly budget, the daily budget. Is this how much money we've got for the day? Probably. That's all we have. Why don't we ask somebody else to help us out here? No, they, they went into a budget that they didn't have. And it was to their ability, their means, and beyond. Because they didn't get to tap into surpluses and all the surpluses we have. They went right to the daily budget, so it seems, and they gave liberally. Why? Radical grace produces radical joy that produces radical ability. They didn't go borrow money, didn't ask anybody else, came right within. When we built this church, we were very concerned for God to use just a small group to do it. Now, when people started hearing about it, our Christian brothers and sisters, they, they, they helped out. Sent their labor, they gave donations. But I don't think it would have been a good thing for us to go out asking people, especially the world, to do what God was calling us to do. And God abundantly supplied through you. Isn't that a testimony of God's grace in your own life? We've paid off the bill, it's gone. Through your giving, God's grace has been used here. To our power and probably for some of you beyond your power. But notice this ability is said to be willing. For to their power I bear record, testimony, I'm telling you church, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves. To be willing means to be a volunteer. They, they chose to give. They weren't coerced. Nobody put guilt on them. They weren't pressured. They weren't driven by outward forces out of radical joy, it overflowed and they were willing of themselves. Now here's another lesson for us. We tend to go to radical extremes in one direction or the other when we talk about our willingness. Grace makes us willing in the day of His power. Okay? So we look in the Bible and we find indicative statements and imperative statements. Indicatives are statements of fact, what God is doing and He's going to do. Imperative is this statement that tells us what we're to do and what we're to be commanded to do. Sometimes we camp out on the commandments and that produces this legalism. We begin to get a little self-righteous and rely upon our rule-keeping because we bank on the imperatives of the Bible. But then indicatives, what happens, this is statements of what God's going to do. God is going to give you grace. God is going to cause you to persevere. God is going to work in you. You will produce fruit as a Christian. So interestingly, the indicatives cause us to become antinomians. They say, well, God's going to do it. 
if he's going to move on me to give, I'll wait till that happens. I don't know, maybe some feeling overcomes me. And then we become complacent. But when grace makes us willing, we find in Philippians again, the church of Macedonia, where Paul says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's imperative. That's a command to be obeyed. On what basis? Because, here's an indicative, God is, indicative verb, God is working in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God is going to cause you to keep working because He that hath begun a good work in you, Philippians 1, 6, He's going to complete it. You will persevere. So now what? Persevere. Do it. Both are intact. Be willing because grace makes you willing. So we need Spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled, Effort. Go be a giver. And if we land on either extreme, we're either relying on ourselves, which leads to self-righteousness and despair, or we're just waiting. And we're just spending all our money on other places or whatever God's calling us to do because, well, I just don't feel like He's moved on me yet. And so grace came to them and they were willing of themselves. They were willing. They chose to do it, but grace was moving in them. Which is it? It's both. Work out all of your salvation. Work out all of your obedience. Be obedient because God is working all of it out. Every ounce of obedience that you do, God worked it out. And every ounce of obedience you do, you worked it out. So give. And watch the grace of God work through you to give because He makes His people willing in the day of His power. Any camping out on either side is going to lead us to an extreme. And so Paul wants the Corinthian church to know when grace came, they were willing. It was really grace and they were really willing and they looked at their account, looked at their budget, did whatever it took and says, I am choosing today to give. And that's how it works. Are you making choices By the grace of God. Are you active in God's grace? And again, the best way to bring these two together is by prayer. Wake up and pray, Lord. Help me to be this kind of giver, this kind of person, and now move out in obedience to be the very kind of person you just prayed that God would help you be. And then grace comes. As we rely and we're dependent on His promises, on the person of Christ, and we're praying more in 2023 and asking God for this grace, the Holy Spirit to empower us. And then we wake up, pray, and then we go, just like you go to work. With the spirit of prayer and the spirit of humility, as you're working, you're relying, and you're looking to Jesus every step of the way. So we are to be willing. Radical power is ability that God has given us through our means here, and then we're to be willing. We're to choose to be willing. We are to be glad, to be joyful, and then we are to act on that willingness. And then lastly, radical surrender. 
And this they did, verse 5, not as we hope, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of the Lord. Now, if you, if you start at the end of that statement and move back to the front, verse 5, by the will of God doesn't mean according to His will. It means He was working in you the willing. That's what grace did. They were willing of themselves because it was through the grace of God, through His will, that made them willing. Paul just lays them both out. Next, going in the reverse order, they gave unto us, Paul said. That is the offering, the generous offering that came by joy because they were willing of themselves. They gave it to Paul. But the root of that offering was the priority. Paul says, this they did, not as we expected, but first gave their own selves, then to us, and all of that was by or through the will of the Lord. Now, three things about this as we start to wrap this up. This is what it means to be a Christian. To give yourself first to the Lord. And then whatever flows out of that is rooted in that radical surrender. Radical surrender. So because they first gave themselves to the Lord, they didn't have to decide whether to give or not. Now think about this. You ever been to a grocery store? I go up here to Publix quite a bit because it's very convenient before I go home and grab a few things. And sometimes the, the person working at the counter says, would you like to give to this? I'm like, okay, let me, let me think. I have to decide. Maybe I decide sometimes to. Maybe sometimes I decide not to. We all have to decide on those surpluses. Where are we going to give those funds? But what if the charity you were given to owns you? Just completely owns you like Jesus does. You no longer have to decide. You just have to decide how much now. You're not deciding whether to do it or not because the charity owns you. You're all on board. You've surrendered your whole life your money and all that you are to the charity. You're not deciding whether to give. It's just, how much should I give now? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your soul, which are God's. He owns everybody and all things, but He owns by redemption your body and your soul. It's amazing how many Christians have to decide what they're going to do on Sunday. You know why? They haven't made a radical surrender. Do you have to decide which services you're going to attend? Beloved, there are a thousand reasons that you may not make it and I may not make it that are absolutely valid. You know that's not what I'm talking about. If you have to decide to go to any service this church has, caveat, thousand reasons that are good reasons not to, Likely you haven't made a radical surrender. See, just rip Sunday out of your calendar book. There's no decision there. Or just write in there, I'm at church all day, whatever, however many services there, I'm there. Unless, of course, the thousand valid reasons that the Lord knows, and you know whether they're valid. Because I'm surrendered. He owns me. He owns my life, my days, my time, my money. I'm not deciding whether to give or not. It's just, where do I do it? I don't decide whether to participate or I haven't surrendered in the life of the church. Right? Now, there are certain charities that may not be worthy of your participation and you understand all the, all the things that are going into this. Right? 
But whether you're going to use your money in the kingdom of God is not, I don't have to decide that. Because Jesus owns me for my good. And through radical joy and radical willingness, I'm just surrendered. My whole life is surrendered. I don't have to decide that. Unless, of course, I have greater joy somewhere else. Now, it's really hard. Because they first gave themselves to the Lord, they didn't have to be asked to give. Verse 4, praying us with much entreaty. Now, apparently, Paul just kind of skipped over these churches and said, Titus, look, don't, don't say anything to those guys. They're, they're deeply poor and they're in a great trial of affliction. Apparently, they got word of it. And they asked Paul. You know, if you're in the checkout line at, at a grocery store and you see a canister there, you can wait for them to ask you. Or you can just, you don't have to ask me. I've given myself to Jesus. Again, that's not saying every voluntary opportunity that's the right one and, 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 it's, and it's for you to participate in. But the point is, they asked Paul and they begged him and they implored him and they earnestly said, you let us participate. Paul said, okay. They wanted to have fellowship with the poor suffering saints in Jerusalem. And well, what, if, what if they don't eat tomorrow? Paul, God promised us that if He calls us to give, He's going to come in with grace and give us that to give. We're resting calmly in Jesus to be everything that He says He is for me in the Bible. And so we're asking Paul. See, when you give yourself to the Lord, you're, you're looking. You're looking. I have to force you, drag you. Looking. Now again, the key is the radical joy. If we don't have any joy, you can ask me all you want. And sorry, I got places to be, things to do, things to purchase. Ask somebody else. And then thirdly, because they gave themselves to the Lord, the gift was successful. Without that, your gift will never be a success. What does that mean? What is the point of the gift? What is the point of your life? Glorify God in your body and your soul, which are God's. Without giving yourself to Jesus, none of your money and all your giving will ever give Him glory. Matthew 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and anise and cumin. Now He is going to condemn them in their giving. What's wrong with that? They are tithing. They're giving exactly what they're supposed to give according to law. But he's calling them hypocrites. Because their giving is coming out of a certain kind of heart. And so their giving is not successful. It gives God no glory. What kind of heart? You have omitted the weightier matters of law, judgment or justice, mercy and faith. These ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, judgment and the love of God. And Jesus says in John 15, what is to be our experience of the love of God? Joy. They were giving exactly as the law demanded, except for what the law demanded. And what does the law demand of you? Love God. Now listen to this. With all total surrender. All of your heart, all of your soul, all of your body, all of your strength, 
All of your mind. Not half of it. That is a radical surrender. Without that radical surrender, our gifts are not successful in giving God glory. Because the gifts of the scribes and Pharisees were no good to God. Because it met with a certain kind of heart that didn't love God. They were in love with their money and their praise. And the only reason they gave a tenth is so that everybody would say, Oh, how great. Oh, how good. Oh, how generous you are. Now listen, somebody may find out you're giving and say that about you. But that doesn't mean you're acting that way or giving that way. So don't be confused about that. If somebody finds you're generous and says, You're such a godly person. Never believe everything that people say good about you and never believe the worst thing. Sometimes it's somewhere in between, right? But we know the scribes and Pharisees were acting out of a heart. So their giving was unsuccessful. Their worship was unsuccessful. Well did Isaiah prophesy concerning you. With their mouths they honor me. And with their lips they're saying the right things. They're singing the right words. And their hands are giving the right amount. But in vain they do worship me. Why? Because their hearts are far from me. Their worship was unsuccessful. It was empty in vain. Why? Because of the position and the location of the heart, which is far from God. But the location of the mouth and the lips and the body was right as far as the eye is concerned. But the heart didn't love God, didn't have joy in God, so they were not willing with the right kind of heart because they were not surrendered to God. See, this surrender that they gave was a surrender to God's way of joy and peace. Right? Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. What's God saying? Forsake your way of living. And what is that way apart from God? How did we all live before we met Jesus? We lived for maximum pleasure. Or at least I did. I don't know about you. Yes, I do. The Bible tells me. You did too, right? You lived for as much joy and pleasure that you could get in whatever way you thought you could get it. And now God's saying to you, my dear child, give up that way. Forsake your purposes. Take mine on. Return to me. I will be merciful. I will pardon. And through Jesus, who took that way on himself, I will bring you to everlasting joy. Right? Radical grace, radical joy, radical power, and radical surrender. Have you surrendered to Jesus Christ? What a great day to do so. Second day of a new year. You can chart your your whole year and your life now in a direction of pursuing the love of God. And when you pursue that, what do you get? The joy of God. God is saying to you, seek me, pursue me. Follow my way and experience true joy. True joy. But some of you haven't done it. Either you don't know the love of God or something else is holding you back. Won't you come today and confess Him and repent and start entering into the joy of the Lord? Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your grace that we see in the churches of Macedonia. And looking at it, we would say, tempted to say, surely that grace is not for us. But Paul says it is through his inspired pen. 
It was for the church at Corinth and all the problems they had and all the sins they were sorting out and repenting of. And this same grace has been bestowed upon us and we're to be active in receiving it by faith, rejoicing in it, in who you are and in your promises. So help us in this new year to be more prayerful as a church and as families, to be more in the word of your promises and stand upon the reliability and the faithfulness of what you say and to have joy set before us so that we may be willing, willing by grace, but willing, asking you for the Spirit, fueled by the gospel and trusting in you and moving forward. And then, Lord, help us to make fresh surrenders of our lives every day, waking up, surrendering again and again, because it takes a daily surrender, a daily denial, and a daily surrender to your grace. And may we be able to grow in this new year into the kind of churches at Macedonia, that whether we have great abundance, which we do, we have great abundance in this society, or whether we have deep poverty and much affliction, may the abundance of joy work to produce great liberality through your gracious, sovereign love to us. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.